You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. If we made food a priority, we'd solve a lot of our problems. Hey everyone, this is Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. For this episode, I sat down with Chef Rocco Desperado. This is a really special episode. I want to give you a quick heads up, though. There is some background noise. We're sitting in the library bar at the Nomad Hotel in New York, so you will hear some noise in the background. Where do I start with Rocco? I believe he's one of the greatest chefs of our time. He was the chef of one of the best restaurants in New York City during its time called Union Pacific, where I had my first great fine dining experience. I still remember the cauliflower dish that I had to this day. Many people may know him from the reality show The Restaurant. He has 13 books. He's authored. Five of them have been New York Times bestsellers. He was named Food & Wine Magazine's Best New Chef, People Magazine's Sexiest Chef, and he was the first chef to appear on Gourmet Magazine's cover as America's Most Exciting Young Chef. He currently has a meal delivery service called the Pound-A-Day Diet, where he custom tailors meals to people's nutritional needs, which we'll hear a little bit about. But to be honest, we talk a lot about some things that I've been talking to Rocco about for over 10 years. I always ask him why he thinks the media has been so obsessed of writing about him for 10 years. This is a guy that hasn't been in a restaurant kitchen, but media still pops up asking why Rocco isn't in a restaurant kitchen. We're going to hear his answer once and for all of why he did leave a restaurant kitchen and why he still says he is cooking in a kitchen. I was very caught off guard by a lot of his stories, the reason he's not in the kitchen, stories about his mother, Quite frankly, I felt speechless a lot of the time, and I felt like I should have these follow-up questions, but I, I didn't. I was just absorbing all this information. It was really interesting. He's one of the most charitable people I know. He's received the Golden Heart Award for Dr. Oz's Health Corps Foundation. He's on the Entertainment Council of Feeding America, creating awareness about the issue of hunger in America. He works with Wellness in the Schools, WITS, an organization based out of New York that the great chef Bill Telepan is also a part of. And overall, he just does so much that not many people know, which makes what he does that much more special. So I'm going to stop right there and please enjoy this conversation with Chef Rocco Desperado. Did you want to reveal to everyone that we're in, in a strip club in New York City? Yeah. <laughs> west Side. Are you sure Katie would be okay with that? <laughs> we're on the West Side. I brought 100 singles. We're in the library bar at the Nomad Hotel in New York City, which if you walk into the Nomad Hotel through the lobby, you still won't find it. And then you walk into the dining room, and then you still won't find it. But then you walk through the dining room into the bar, and there's a little nook of a library. Yeah, there needs to be that awkward pause at the host station of the restaurant where you're like, I know where I'm going, and they look at you and acknowledge you know where you're going because you have to walk right through a busy dining room to get to this bar. I like to start with the guest of where we met. But you can tell everyone the truth. No shame in meeting people on Match.com. It's normal now. Have you ever done dating sites? (laughs) No. But I feel like a lot of people do now, and most people meet people online first. It's crazy. We used to make fun of that. Now it's normal. It's very normal. Actually, I think we became closer during Rachel's daytime show many years ago. You were, I think, Shant Petrosian, who's a... Mutual friend who who introduced us, for sure. Introduced us through Rachel's show. Shant is a great TV producer, helps me on this podcast. I think we did an all-star show, which was awesome. And then we hung out a little bit. 
Actually, you helped plan an incredible send-off when I moved out of New York. We did a food crawl. Mm -hmm. You remember that? Yeah, I remember. The last dinner I ever had in New York City was at Danielle, which was incredible. Oh, wow. Obviously. But the night before that, we did a food crawl with me, you, Shant, and a couple of our friends. We started at 11 Madison Park Bar. And then we went to your call, Na Trang. Na Trang for the pork chops. Oh my God, that place was so good. It's still so good. It is still amazing. I want to go back there. And then we went to Balthazar because I had never been there in the four years I lived in New York. Did we get the uh, seafood platter? We got a seafood platter. We got steak frites. We got some like, uh, some tart. I want to say a goat cheese something or other tart. I don't know. And then we went to Ken. I feel we may have lost you at that point. I think we went on to Kenmar, I want to say. I'm not positive, which is not open anymore. Very cool. Thanks for the memory. That was seven years ago. Yeah. Wow. Plus, seven plus. So towards the end of this podcast, I like to do a speed round. Sure. But I'm switching it up. I'm doing it at the beginning. First thing that comes to your mind, what did you have for dinner last night? Chicken enchiladas with coconut sour cream and avocado salsa that was made in my kitchen in Astoria. That's part of my pound a day diet home delivery service. Ah, we're going to get into that. When was the last time you ate fast food? The closest thing I had to fast food recently was a deep fried chicken sandwich at PJ Clark's. That counts, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. PJ Clark's in the uh, marina down by Battery Park. Yeah. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Truffles. Smell in the kitchen you hate. (laughs) Bleach and ammonia mixed together at the end of the night. (laughs) It's definitely time to go home then. Piece of advice you would give to today's young cooks. Sure. One thing that a lot of young cooks think they need to do is go to culinary school. And while I'm a big fan of culinary school and education in general, and my alma mater, especially Culinary Institute of America, and believe that had I not gone to that school at that time in 1984, when I was 16 turning 17, I would not have learned how to cook the way I did and not have taken it so seriously. They, they definitely instilled a sense of discipline and, and made me understand this is a very serious profession that you had to work very hard at. It was good for me at that time. But now things are very different. You can go to culinary school on YouTube and learn everything that we used to beg chefs to teach us. Because, you know, back in the 80s, everything was a secret. Everything was a secret. You had to work for free to get the secrets out of the chefs. I know this is supposed to be a speed round, but this is not a speed question. Pause the speed round. This is fantastic. (laughs) Because I went to CIA as well after in 1984. You went to college and then went after? I went to college for two years and then I went to CIA and then went to college again after CIA. Understood. I did the same thing. Really? Yeah. I went to college first, then I went to the CIA, then I went to Boston University and got my bachelor's degree just like you did. So great minds think alike. In any case, you can go to a restaurant that you like and there's so many in every city now it wasn't like that in the 80s. In the 80s, you had to go to uh, L.A., New York, or San Francisco. San Francisco, probably, arguably, the top of that list at that time. And work for one of the three or four great chefs in those cities. And getting that job was next to impossible. If your father or mother weren't frequent guests and weren't able to talk to the chef one night and get you a job there, you probably weren't going to get hired. But that's... The opposite of that is true now. You can get a job anywhere where you apply because there are so many jobs and so few cooks. Chefs of every caliber are taking anyone who's willing to work. It's crazy. I heard Danielle talking about it recently. Daniel Ballou, one of the greatest chefs to have ever lived on the planet, is comparing the 80s where he had hundreds of resumes per position to now where... He's hiring people if they're, they've got a good attitude and they're willing to work. Now you can get a job in a great restaurant rather easily and find out if this career is for you or not for you. It's sort of the acid test, right? You'll know in about five minutes 
in a, re- in a professional restaurant, if you're made for it, if it's made for you. And that's a good way to start start out in this business, learning how to cook in a restaurant. I still think that's the case, even though there's much, so many things available in the media and in writing and food styling and outside of the restaurant. Well, I say that too. I, I talk to multiple people a week, who, whether they're career changers or just getting into the industry. And I'm like, regardless of what you want to do, go work in a restaurant. Yeah. To, so you see it, know it, experience it. And chefs love free uh, cooks. We love free labor. <laughs> I make the case that if you go work for someone like Danielle for free for two years, you'll come out ahead financially and in terms of your experience than if you went to culinary school for two years. That's an interesting and, and point. And full price for it. Because there's people on both sides of that coin who are saying free labor is ridiculous. You should be paying your cooks. Working for Danielle for two years, yeah. He runs an institute of higher education as well as a restaurant. Yeah. And you'll learn a lot. Back to the speed round. Yeah. What actor would you want to play Rocco Despirito in a movie? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, whenever someone says actor, I think of Robert De Niro. So I love him. The idea of playing me in a movie is so hysterical. I can't, even think, I can't even get to the next part of that question. Why are you asking that question? What OK Magazine survey did you lift that off of? Come on. <laughs> Come on. You have direct access to everybody in this business. You don't have to do those, the trite questionnaire that they do on the red carpets. Speaking of red carpet questions. Speaking of trite questions. Do you have a go-to date night meal? So I think a great date night meal is whenever someone cooks for another person and you're thinking, well, I do that all the time. But... You are one of very few people that does that all the time. I think if you want to tell someone that they mean something to you, cook anything for them. Assemble something for them. So a great, but a great date night meal is uh, a risotto dish or like a lobster, boiled lobster with butter is an amazing date night meal. I think boiled lobster is actually one of the best because it's very tactile. There's butter. Everyone loves lobster. You have to break it apart. It's very hands-on. You're messy already. You know, (laughs) it it just works for a number of reasons. We talked almost like eight years ago as you were getting into the health and nutrition space. Well, I got into it about 12 years ago and, and it was 2005. But we probably talked about it because I was on either Rachel Ray or at an industry event and, and was probably promoting one of my books that had a healthy recipe in it. Yeah. You had a newer book coming out. You were already in that space, but now you have books, products, which you mentioned earlier. Is there a moment that you decided to get into that space? Yeah. So it wasn't one con decision at one time. It was a series of events, a confluence of seemingly coincidental occurrences and one very memorable meeting with my doctor. So in 2005, I'd been living the chef life to the third power. When I say the chef life, I mean working not only late, but long hours because we work late and we work early. We work basically 20 hours a day. We eat dinner at 2 a.m. Often it's at Blue Ribbon in Soho, and they have foie gras and snails and lots of great wine. I remember going there with Mario Batali at least 15, 20 years ago, and we'd start off with our favorite wine, and could we have two bottles open, please? And we'd order like all the appetizers, and then we'd think about what we were going to have for dinner. You know, so it was a life of excess, right? Indulgement. And at 38, I was told by my doctor I had the metabolic age of a 68-year-old man, and that he did the math and considered my family history of heart disease, that I would probably die 20 years younger than I should if I didn't change things. That was a moment that I remember very well and was not expecting and sort of solidified my path to health and wellness. But at the same time, a few other things happened. I agreed to do a charity for another doctor who is my chiropractor. And he said, hey, I need your help with this charity in Connecticut. And you know, chefs, we do charities all the time, right? And we often 
the charity is prepare 500 portions of something. Right. So I said, sure, it's no problem, Dr. Duke. I'm happy to do it for you. And then uh, a few months later, he's like, so are you ready for the triathlon? I'm like, what triathlon? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? He's like, yeah, yeah, we were going to run, swim, bike, all that. I'm like, I don't know how to do any of that. And he's like, well, you, you agreed. You signed up for it. You better get training. I was like, okay, well, I better get training. So I started training for that. And then my friend Ben Silverman asked me to be on The Biggest Loser and teach his contestants how to cook healthy food. So the universe was definitely pointing me in a direction. And I just started to follow the path it was taking me down and very naturally and, and organically, I started to do things that made sense health-wise. I did the triathlon. I did an Ironman at the end of that year. I went back to my doctor and he said, I don't know what you did, but you, you have the body of an 18-year-old. You've reversed everything. You don't need to take all those medicines anymore. And it was good news because one of the side effects of one of the medicines was impotence. It's, it's really not something you want to, you wake up in the morning dreaming about, you know, at 38. You were 38 when you did your first triathlon. I think it was still in my 38th year, yeah, or 30 or 39. How many did you do? Uh, 15 maybe total. I did a lot of sprints, which are the smallest ones, a lot of Olympics, and then two Ironman 70.3s. Are you still doing them? No. No. So I've since had back surgery. I was sort of unable to do anything for a year. And I found out I can't do any more triathlons. I've tried, but I can't. I can barely bike. And I love biking. So I've had this little thing called scoliosis since I was born. Yeah. And being a chef compounds it literally and figuratively. And it's been a challenge my whole life because as a chef, all you do is stand on your feet and compress your spine all day long. I work with the chiropractor, strengthened my core, did all the stuff you're supposed to do, and finally ended up having this surgery. So now I can do yoga, I can soul cycle. Do you like soul cycle? Yeah, so it's fun, yeah. Other than the scary instructors, it's really fun. <laughs> I'm always the guy all the way in the back with a cap on. <laughs> You've hit 50. I have, yes. I'm 51 soon. You don't look 50 at all. I look older? No, like 10 years younger. Thank you. Is that... I mean, aside from some real health, you know, back and stuff like that. Yeah, so the, the back issue is a chronic thing that I've had my whole life and I will have to deal with my whole life. And part of maintaining that and keeping that from going from bad to really bad or to, to worst case scenario ever is maintaining my health and my weight, right? So the heavier you are, the more compression on your spine and the worse your you know, chronic back issues get. If you're asking me, does eating clean contribute to, you know, youthfulness? Without question. That's your every single day lifestyle, like super clean. Yes. So I run, I run a small business called The Pound a Day Diet, Fresh Food Delivery Service, and it's based on my book, The Pound a Day Diet. And it's local, organic, gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free food that is calorie-corrected and nutritionally-corrected and specifically designed for each of my clients' food preferences, medical needs, weight loss goals. And I was client zero or client one. I tested this diet that I came up with called a pound-a-day diet in cookbook form first on myself, and it worked really well. And then I tested it on a few other people. And then my publisher told me I had to test it before I could publish the book so I could prove that it worked. And those people became clients, and seven years later, I'm still running this small little fresh food delivery business, and I'm still when on it. When you say yeah. small, like... I'm talking about 30, 30 clients. So it's tailored to each client. It's tailored to each client, and then they each get six to eight meals per day, 365 days a year. I'm frequently in touch with them, their doctors, helping them to achieve their health goals, reverse disease, weight goals, you know, all kinds of things. So I'm their health coach, their chef, their nutritionist. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been doing that for a while. 
One of my more public clients is Sherry Shepard. She was an early and big, big advocate of this, of this plan. That's incredible. Good for you, man. Thanks. Do you have a cheat food? Yeah, pizza. Grandma pie from Umberto's. I think you know about Umberto's in Hyde Park. So good. All right. So you grew up in Queens. How did this influence you? Which way? How did it put me in prison? How did it keep me out of prison? It's a tough place. I take it. Yeah. So Jamaica, Queens in the 70s. This is, you know, crack central New York City. The home of hip hop, a lot of people would say. Uh, I come from the same neighborhood that everyone in Run, Run DMC comes from, 50 Cent comes from, so pretty proud of our history when it comes to music. But when it comes to drugs, nothing to be proud of. Very tough neighborhood. It was New York City in the 70s, which was tough no matter where you lived. But the really cool thing about it was that I lived in an area where the number of ethnicities were too many to count. There were so many people from so many different countries that I was exposed to cuisine from every part of the universe. And by the time I was 14, my culinary outlook was so broad and so adventurous. I felt like it definitely helped me prepare for a life as a chef, helped me have an open mind. And that coupled with the fresh food and Italian lifestyle I was living at home. When I say Italian lifestyle, I'm talking about chickens, rabbits in the yard, apple trees, pear trees, peach trees, cherry trees, shaking mulberry trees with you know, my family members holding a big sheet underneath the tree, canning our own tomatoes, making our own wine, baking our own bread. Yeah, that was inside the home. My aunts, uncles, all of us participated. And then outside it was Jamaican beef patties and Chinese food and Japanese food and all kinds of stuff. So it's pretty cool, pretty cool. You like Jamaica beef patties. Yeah, so but I got them in Jamaica, Queens. I first found out about them in Jamaica because there's a large Caribbean population in Jamaica. I still am a fan of Jamaican beef patties. In fact, I went to Smorgasburg recently and I saw those and thought I, I got to have one, but I knew I'd have 10. Does Smorgasburg count as fast food to you? I did have a chickpea and olive burger there, but that's all vegan, probably too healthy to count as fast food, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mom had a big influence on like food for you growing up. Who was cooking? My mom was useless. She couldn't cook a thing. You lie. <laughs> yeah, she had those meatballs. Obviously, she's had a yeah, she's had a huge influence. Her and, and and her world, her sphere, her friends, her brothers and sisters, and all of them did and continue to have a huge influence. It was absolutely ingrained, but I rejected it. My whole I rejected it for most of my life in, until I was my, in my mid thirties. I thought, you know, ethnic self-loathing, right? Classic. You're Italian, you go to school, you don't speak the same language as the other kids did. But when you're in Queens, everyone else has the same issue. I was, I was ashamed of the fact that I was Italian. My parents didn't speak the language and I hid it. And then around 33, I realized, oh, this is a really cool thing that I'm ashamed of. I should really embrace it. And, and obviously changed my, my tune a little bit. Mom had a massive influence, yeah. And not only in cooking, but in, in terms of what it meant to be part of the hospitality business. She was a person who understood kindness and generosity innately. She had unlimited resources when it came to love and forgiveness and generosity. And remember to this day, on the bus with my mom, you know, living in Jamaica, Queens, her reaching out to all the kids on the bus and giving them a piece of candy, a piece of bread, a piece of Parmigiano-Reggiano. <laughs> They'd look at her like she was insane, but she was this, you know, she was always that woman. Believing in the magic of the moment, the, the exchange that happens between people when you're feeding someone or offering someone something to eat, that wonderful moment that occurs is something I learned from her first and continue to see it in the hospitality business. That's the essence of hospitality, right? The idea that you're there to make others happy and that's what makes it such a beautiful job. That's why we're hooked to hospitality, like people are hooked on heroin. We need that fix, you know, that like, 
wow, did I just do something that made you feel good and, and now I feel good? That's what keeps us going. It's certainly not the hourly pay, right? Right. <laughs> Is there a first amazing meal that you remember? Yeah. So my mom and I used to, we were very adventurous and we came to the city. When I say come to the city, we were already in the city, but when I, we would go to the city, we'd go to Manhattan and we loved Chinese food. And one day we went to a Chinese restaurant and ordered some food. It wasn't written in English. And the waitress looked a little different than the waitress that normally served us at our favorite Chinese restaurant in, in Jamaica. We ended up getting ramen. And I didn't know it was ramen. I was only nine or something. And we got these funny spoons and chopsticks and all these accoutrements for ramen. And that was definitely one of the first memorable, really good Japanese meals that I had. To this day, I don't know what restaurant it was. I know it was on the island of Manhattan. I know it was very expensive because my mom freaked when the bill came. And I know that there was no wonton soup and pork fried rice on the menu. What was the first dish you ever cooked that you were proud of? Could be as a kid or could be in like older. Yeah. So the first dish I ever cooked that I was really proud of and I felt was my own was a raw dish. It was Taylor Bay scallops with uni and mustard oil. It was a signature at Union Pacific. I've had that dish. Dish is out of control. That one makes me very proud. That makes me proud for the simple fact that I feel it's original. It mostly came out of my brain and it came from many, many months of tinkering and making dishes that were similar to it and redoing it and redoing it. It also got me the job at Union Pacific, so I'm pretty proud of it for that reason. How old were you when you started? 33, I think. Oh, 35, maybe. It was 1996, so that's just over 30. I don't know if I told you this. Union Pacific was like the first nicer meal that I ever had in my life when I'm you were there. I'm sorry that because I'm sure you're still paying the credit card bill off. <laughs> Hopefully your parents paid. Yeah. My brother paid for it. I was in culinary school. I was oh, at CIA. Cool. Oh, I wow. came, my brother was in New York. Wow. I came into the city. I went there with a couple of his colleagues. They asked me where, you know, they wanted a good, nice meal. And that's where I suggested. That's where we went. I had a cauliflower type dish, I believe. Yeah, the cauliflower bestia. Ooh. That was vegan. That was my first That's awesome. nice meal. That's so cool. Glad, glad to have been of service. What was your first job? First job was at Sal's Pizzeria on Sutphin Boulevard in Jamaica, Queens in 1979. No, 1978. I was 11, I think. So 66, 77, What were you doing? Wiping tables 11, or something? I was opening cans of uh, crushed tomatoes and tomato puree for the pizza sauce. Uh, grating polio mozzarella for the, <laughs> the, 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 che- the cheese. Wasn't allowed to make the dough. Uh, and served lots of Italian ice and fountain soda. But that was my first job in the restaurant business. And I, I've been in the restaurant business ever since. It was the job I got on a dare. Really? Yeah, my mom. I don't think she realized she was daring me to get a job. But when she told me she wouldn't give me money to buy Love Gun by Kiss, because they were the devils, I protested and we had a fight. And she told me, yeah, Rocco, you wanted this devils. You go get a job. You make your own money. You buy what do you want. I was like... Cool, I can do that. I didn't know that. I didn't know I could work and buy my own stuff. So the next day, we walked up and down Jamaica Avenue, Hillside Avenue, Sutphin Boulevard, and Sal, I think, took sympathy and, and gave me a job. He paid me uh, the vast sum of 50 cents an hour, below minimum wage, even in the 70s. I think minimum wage was like 285, but he let me work. 60 hours a week, so... At 11? Yeah. What the hell? It was summertime. Okay. Yeah. So, and he let me eat all the Italian ice I wanted. So, um, I had severe gastric 
issues, and I had $30 a week. I bought Love Gun. I bought Some Girls from the Stones. Uh, I took my mom out for Chinese food lunch and to Coney Island, where we both went on the hellhole and threw up after. It was a super epic day. How long did you work there for? For that whole summer. Then the next summer, I worked at another pizzeria, and then the next one, I worked in a bagel nosh, and then the next one, I worked full-time. I was at 14, I think, yeah. New Hyde Park in. Cooking. Well, peeling shrimp, chopping parsley, making you know vinaigrette for salsa, head cheese. You went to CIA early. Yeah, I was 16, going on 17. I skipped a year in high school just to get into the CIA earlier, because back then there was a waiting list. You had to wait a year to get in. Wow. Plus, you needed 1,600 hours of real, real life experience that they actually verified back then, and usually a recommendation from an alum, an alum, yeah. After CIA. So after CIA, I went straight to Paris and worked there for two years, then came back home and went to Boston University. Came back home, worked for Jean-Michel Dio, uh, Adrienne, in what was the Hotel de Maxime that became the Peninsula. And then Great Kunst took over. I went to school and came back and worked for Great Kunst at Les Panas. Take me back to this 1986 time. Okay. So that's just graduating from Culinary Institute of America in September 1986. And then you went to Paris. Went to Paris days later. You knew we were going there? I worked at the Marriott Marquis for my internship, which is this... Here? Yeah. In Times Square? Yeah, we, I opened it in 1985 or four. Yeah. It was really cool. So it was the largest hotel ever in New York City, 2,000 rooms, massive project for Times Square. It was the anchor of the renewal of Times Square. Unfortunately for all of us, it was the end of the peep shows (laughs) and uh, fake ID and all that wonderful stuff that used to make New York so seedy and beautiful. I met a chef there named Robert Winhorst who knew I was dying to go to Europe because in the 80s you had to go to Europe if you wanted to be a chef worth your salt and going to Europe and finding a job with a great chef was next to impossible. But he was Dutch and he worked for a couple of great chefs in Europe and he promised me to get me this job in Paris and he promised me for over a year. I guess it fell through because he sent me to this chef who sort of wasn't expecting me when I got there. He was uh, Dominique Cessillon. He was the chef of the Jardin de Cine restaurant in the Hotel Prince du Gal on Avenue Georges V in Paris. And I remember getting there and I had five suitcases. One was filled with culinary equipment. One was filled with uniforms. One was filled with cookbooks. One was, had my knives. And then one had like, you know, toothpaste and, and stuff that I actually needed. I remember the cheapest flight to Paris was Pakistani Airlines. It was like $198, but you had to go through Karachi or something like that. And so it took me forever to get there. I was exhausted. I fell asleep in the lobby of the hotel. They thought I was a bum. They just tried to kick me out a few times, and the chef was too busy to see me. And he, like, after six hours of waiting, he finally saw me. So I'm 18 going on 19 at this point. Brings me to his office and says, yes, I know Robert Winhorse. Yes, we spoke. But didn't he tell you? I told him I didn't have a job for you. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Like, tears started streaming down my eyes. I'm like, oh, but he told me. He promised me. What can I do? And uh, he felt so bad for me. I must have been such a, such a pitiful case. He took me home on his little scooter that night, you know, tries to ease the blow. I think I had 100 bucks in my pocket. And then little by little, just let me live in his apartment with his family. And he worked for Joel Robuchon. So he took me to meet Joel Robuchon and watch him do demos, go to Jaman, his restaurant at the time. He took me to all these culinary conferences. He did everything he could except hire me. And... 
let me work for free at the restaurant there eventually. But what I had to do in the meanwhile was work at a place called Cactus Charlie's, which was famous for its 100 flavors of burgers. So ironically, I went to Paris to, to learn how to make 100 types of American burgers. So I worked there and I made my 6,000 francs, which was minimum wage back then. I think it was equivalent to $1,000, maybe $800 at the time, uh, 1986. Worked for free for Dominique Session. The nicest man I've ever met in my life to this day, love and cherish everything he did for me. He couldn't have been, first of all, he was crazy because he didn't know me. And he, I mean, he brought me home. He had a teenage daughter and a lovely wife who was an artist, didn't know anything about me. Hadn't even spoke to my parents, really didn't know a thing. Just, I guess, just kinder part of him took over. I guess the tears probably helped. All the tears probably Maybe. helped. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a place when you flew Moved out there? there? Yeah. Place to live? No, nowhere to live. Nothing. I had zero. zero. I had a plane ticket there and that was it. Yeah. And a passport. I just thought I'm going to Europe. This is what chefs do. We go to Europe. We go to Europe to learn how to cook. I, I don't regret a minute of it because it, it was definitely life altering, illuminating, just an amazing experience. Learned so much about cooking, so much about life about other cultures. I learned how to speak French. Do you still speak French? Oui, je, je parle français encore. Do you speak French better than Italian? Ironically, I do. So I learned French in Paris from the les titi parisiens who have a very distinct accent and I learned Italian from my parents who come from a small village outside Naples and Napolitan is not even spoken anymore in Italy, so if I went anywhere in Italy and I used the, my mother tongue, literally my mother, my mother tongue, it would sound so awful then they wouldn't even speak to me. I mean, I, I can't think of an accent that would be com comparable in America. There is no, it's, it's like an ancient language, I guess. Yeah. When I go to Italy, I actually speak Spanish. Oh, good. That, over, that works well. Over English yeah. and they understand me. Like, Very more similar. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Both Latin-based romance languages. Yeah. So. Wow, that's a great story. But I slept in the subway. I slept in the basement of the restaurant. I ended up working at another restaurant called Marshall's, which was a guy, Marshall Backler. He, was, he left America to escape the IRS and opened a restaurant with what we believed to be laundered money. And it was a great restaurant. It was like, it was like a Wolfgang Puck restaurant that you'd know today in, in Paris. I worked the grill there and I slept in the basement for months. It was so degrading and I was so impoverished, but it was probably the best two years of my life. Amazing, amazing time. It was wild. I've never been so broke and, and so happy at the same time. Okay, so if I asked you like a high point in your career or a low point in your career, Actually, recently, Dr. Oz um, recognized me at the Health Corps Gala for my work with Health Corps with the Golden Heart Award. And, and I've been helping Health Corps for you know, a long time and watched all these wonderful people receive this award. Never thought for a second he'd consider me for it. That was a, a serious high point because when Dr. Oz is giving you praise, I think it means, it means something. You know, he's also the guy who did my mom's heart valve replacement, so... Definitely very special to me. That was huge. I would say a low point, getting fired from Cactus Charlie's. <laughs> Why <laughs> did you get fired from Cactus Charlie's, still, the American burger place in France? I can't remember. How did I screw up the 100 toppings of burgers? I don't know. Getting fired from Cactus Charlie's, I think it was. Was that tough on you? Yeah, because it was the only place I could work and make money. You've worked for like crazy, incredible European chefs over in Europe and yeah. here, but Cactus Charlie's. Cactus Charlie's. I wonder if it's still there. It had swinging doors, like Western style swinging doors, and they served cocktails, which was a big deal back then in Paris. Cocktails were 
not serve. And it was it was like degrading on every level. And then to be fired from the most degrading restaurant ever was pretty bad. It also made me more broke. All right. I have a question. It's kind of like eight in one. There's people who say, oh, Rocco's been out of the kitchen. And then you say, you're still in the kitchen right now. Be because you are, you're doing work in the kitchen, restaurant kitchen, I guess people are referring to. I say to you, you're one of the best chefs in the country, Thank I believe. You. I think you were, I think you are. When people ask me about you, they're like, how's Rocco? Is he a nice guy? Was he actually a good chef? I'm like, yeah, he's an incredible chef. I, I feel like you have like the complete package of like finesse, talent, flavor, profile. I truly do. Being very generous. You took your antidepressants today, I see. <laughs> if you're like... To be honest, I feel like there's been very big writers that are like been obsessed with writing about you for like over 10 years. Why is that? Why is that? I don't know. You tell me. I can't, I can't figure it out. Yeah. I was talking to a friend earlier. I'm like, look at these big writers I've been writing about. I'm like, where's Rocco? Rocco in the kitchen. Rocco hasn't been in the kitchen. Where Rocco could have been this, Rocco this. You're happy with your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. And my friend's like, well, ask them. Listen to how worked up you're getting. <laughs> <laughs> Any clue why you think they're obsessed with writing about you? It's been a mystery to me, to be honest with you. Like a random article will come out. It's been a mystery to me. I, I really don't understand the obsession. I think it's a leftover from a time that no longer exists. You know, there, there was a time where certain expectations existed for chefs. If you didn't follow a path that was expected, people scratched their heads. Now, when you look at the most famous chefs, 90% of them either just started restaurant, working in restaurants, or never have and never will. It's not really part of what a chef has to do these days, right? Talking about Andrew Zimmer, arguably one of the most famous chefs on the planet. I think he just opened a casual restaurant, what, five years ago, four years ago? He started with a truck, right? So I'm not really, I'm, I'm puzzled, I'm as puzzled as you are. To respond to the claim that I don't cook anymore, I'll simply say I cook every day. I'm cooking all the time. I cook for clients, I cook for myself. You're not making base scallops with mustard oil? I am. And I'm still making base scallops yeah? with mustard Yeah, yeah. I make food that is equivalent, I would say, even better than Union Pacific food because now it's healthy. And, you know, the path that I'm on is the path that my life took me on. And it feels good. It's me. It's, it's authentically me. What, what do you think is behind this obsession? I don't know. I, I almost think you were like, listen, you did endorsement. Yeah, like reality TV, whatever. We don't have to talk about that part. But like you almost had endorsements before chefs these days wish they had endorsements. Like you were almost ahead of your time in taking a different path. That's what I think. I don't know. I feel like these days a chef may make X amount of money with one restaurant and then they get a fascination to open multiple restaurants. So they do it because it's more money. I get it. Some chefs 20 years ago just needed one. Now it's more, more, more and it's open that burger spot to, so we could have 30 and make more. And it's like, oh crap, I could get paid 50,000 or six figures or seven figures for an endorsement. You had that unique opportunity because you're a good looking, talented, well-spoken guy. Easy, easy. I, know, I happen to know you're taken, so... <laughs> Stop <laughs> trying to seduce me. <laughs> so I, it worked, but I think you were ahead of your time with it. I feel like it shocked people. If you were in Union Pacific or had another three-star restaurant up until five years ago and then started doing a car endorsement or a food product, I don't think it would have been as shocking. Well, because everyone is doing that now. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's nothing I've done that chefs aren't doing all the time now. There's just maybe some disconnect between the eras, the era of the chef who does media and endorsements and the one who doesn't. And if you look at all the chefs who 
back then would have said, I'll never do that, pointing out one who actually isn't doing that now. Yeah. You know? And it's not to say that I'll never have a restaurant again. Maybe I will. I mean, I think I have something. It's a matter of what do I bring to the table? I didn't want to be a restaurant chef for the sake of being a restaurant chef. When I opened Union Pacific, I felt I had a unique point of view, a certain set of culinary skills. And when you combine the two of those, the skills and the point of view, you ended up with Union Pacific, which was a very special place in time for me. And apparently for some people who were there as well as customers, I don't know that I could re recreate that now. Things are so different these days, but I, but I can bring this healthy perspective that I've been obsessed with myself, my real passion to the table now. And I see the need and I also see that there's a demand. For the last 12 years, I've been waiting for the demand. There's been a need, you know, the, the obesity rates are alarming. The type two diabetes in children is alarming. Our food production system is in shambles. There's so much need, but until, I don't know, three, four, five at the most years ago, this was not a topic anyone was discussing. No one influential in the culinary world thought this was important enough to be you know, top of mind now. A lot of people are talking about it, and I think because I started 12 years ago focusing on healthy and delicious, not just delicious, that I now have 10 years of experience and a different point of view, but still focused on flavor, that would be something that I could bring to the table that's unique and, and could be wonderful, you know? So who knows? Maybe it'll happen. You've again. had to have yeah. gotten... You don't have to say anything if you don't want, but people had to have had approach you to take these concepts of these books and business meal plan business you have to turn it into a concept, fast casual or whatever. I'm always offered a very conventional restaurant. So in you know the days immediately following Union Pacific, lots of offers to open restaurants uh, of a similar type, go to Vegas, uh, that kind of thing. But my life was taking me in a different direction because it I needed it physically. I was in terrible health and it, it made me happy. At that time, no one was opening healthy restaurants. And now there are some healthy, fast food, you know, quick serve concepts and uh, modified service concepts. I think the world is probably ready for a fine dining healthy experiment. And maybe this is the right time. I don't know. You know, don't forget in the last 15 years how much more difficult it's become to run a restaurant profitably and successfully. If it was hard back then, it's, it's times 10 now. Yeah, absolutely. Who did you look up to? in the industry as a young cook. You worked with a lot of European chefs. You know, we talked about Jonathan Waxman before. He was definitely one of my early heroes, for sure. Tom Keller, of course, was. Some French guys. Uh, I was obsessed with Freddy Girardet, who I'm sure no one even knows who he is anymore, but he was one of the most talented chefs on the planet. I ended up working for one of his protégés, Greg Kunz. Where was Freddy? In a restaurant in Switzerland, yeah. It was called Freddy Girardet. Yeah, I remember his logo was great because it was the alphabet, and then just F and G were colored, Freddy Girardet. I remember being especially happy working for Gray because I had the Freddy Girardet cookbook and he has team picture in the beginning and Gray's in that picture. I think so is David Boulay. Did you work for David? I interned for David. I didn't work permanently for him. He's someone I would love to still work with, by the way. Yeah. Who, by the way, is also obsessed with healthy food now. David yeah. Boulay is? Yeah. Yeah. So Freddy Girardet was a huge person for me. Dominique Sassion, the chef I mentioned earlier, was a huge influence. Uh, Jean-Georges from the times of Lafayette, you know, to, till today is a massive hero of mine. I mean, he's super fun, doesn't take himself too seriously, has an immense amount of talent. Saw so many things coming before they hit big. Definitely a, a change agent and someone who had grand visions. You know, he, he could see the future. He made the future happen. Are there any like, current chefs right now here anywhere that you're crushing on? Yeah, I still love David Boulay. The last, one of the last most incredible meals I had was at David Boulay's restaurant. 
not too long ago. You're going to be disappointed by this answer, and sorry, everyone, but I don't go, I don't eat in restaurants anymore. I eat my own healthy food every day. So if you want to eat healthy and stay on a, on a, a diet that's remotely calorie corrected and, and carb corrected and organic and local, it's almost impossible to do that without cooking it for yourself. So can you explain like calorie corrected and carb? Sure. Yeah. So, so the average uh, American eats 3,790 calories a day. The average American should eat about 1,500 a day. So calorie corrected means that you find out what your basal metabolic rate is, your calorie burning ability at rest called the BMR. And you can find that out a number of ways, but the easiest ways is just by a fancy scale that will tell you. And so mine is around 2,500 calories. It all depends on how much lean muscle mass you have. And you eat that amount of calories per day and you maintain your current weight. If you want to lose weight, you eat less. If you want to gain weight, you eat more. It's so simple, right? It's called the isocaloric balance. Formulas figured out, but everyone wants Absolutely. to know why they're not losing weight. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the question I get all the time. Hey, I'm, I'm in the gym six days a week. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Why am I not losing weight? And for every person, it's a different answer because their combination of, you know, their regime is, is always different. You know, everybody's body's different. Everybody's eating habits are different. A lot of people don't understand what the difference between healthy and non-healthy carbs are or what contains sugar and what doesn't and why a healthy processed food is still not healthy and that kind of thing. When you were training for triathlon or Ironman, do you go on that scale every day or every week? To, do you have to change your regimen? When you're training for a triathlon, you can't keep weight on. So you're eating just about everything in, in sight. And that's part of the reason that I started to cook healthy food because triathletes can eat with impunity. They burn five to 6,000 calories a day and most of the time are too skinny. You know Levan Bakery? You know that amazing cookie? It's like the most delicious brick. It's like a pound. But yeah, it's amazing. I mean that in a loving way. It's yeah, delicious. It's a big, delicious yeah. cookie made with tons of butter and chocolate and sugar. That cookie was invented because the owners were trying to maintain weight training for Ironman. Really? Yes, ask them. It's... it's True story. That's fascinating. Yeah. They, they're basically saying to themselves, how, what food can we create that has the most calorie, uh, intense amount of calories possible? And, and that's what they came up with. So when I was training, I noticed that everyone eats a lot of garbage and a lot of shakes and a lot of bars. Naturally, being a chef, that wasn't good enough for me. So I would just I'd take foods that I love, like lobster bisque, and just redo it without the bad carbs and the bad sugars and all the processed junk and the dairy and the gluten. And I find that in many cases, it was much more delicious that way. The lighter version of lobster bisque is more delicious and I'll tell you why. There's a scientific reason for it. So it turns out that the volatiles of lobster are, they're hydrophilic. And we, we normally make lobster bisque with cream. So we're expecting water-attracted molecules of flavor to stick to fat molecules and cream. But it's really hard for them to do that because they're not attracted to each other in nature. So the lobster bisque that I made with chicken stock and wine as a base came out much better than the lobster bisque I made with all the fat. There's a real reason for it. and That's fascinating. Yeah, I remember the first time I made it with basically chicken stock, water, and some wine. That first boil, you know, when the first boil comes up and you can tell whether you screwed it up or you made <laughs> something really good. Any super stew, any chef out there knows what I'm talking about. The first boil is so, so revealing. I remember tasting it and thinking, oh my God, this tastes like lobster. This is such, has such a strong lobster flavor. And I looked it up and did the research and found out why, you know, every flavor molecule, every volatile is either lipophilic or hydrophilic. So, so in many cases, 
cases, all these foods ended up much more delicious than they were in their original versions and healthier because they had less processed carbs or less sugar or less unhealthy fats like dairy. This will be my mother's favorite podcast episode, 100%. Is she a lipophilic girl or hydrophilic girl? <laughs> I, I was thinking as you were explaining this, when you started doing this 12 years ago, you were probably, I don't want to say struggling to find ingredients to substitute or use because they probably weren't as widespread. And now 10, 12 years later, you're probably seeing more swaps, more opportunities. Yeah, the idea of swapping ingredients and substituting didn't really exist back then. That's my mom's jam. Like, she'll come back to the store and be like, I made this blueberry muffin with coconut agave nectar. Yeah. I'm like, mom, like, what are you, where are you finding this? Everyone's looking for something to replace buttercream flour. Right. right. It's funny because the I worked as a kosher cook for a long time. Where I lived in Israel for six months. You and, did? Yeah. So when I went to college before the CIA, I did a work-study program in Israel. And that was for a semester and a summer. And we cooked kosher food in the hotel, Dan Kisaria in Caesarea. There were rules, obviously, but it wasn't a burden because Israel is a place with magnificent ingredients. Yeah. Anything you can imagine, they grow and they grow it expertly and it's always ripe and delicious. It wasn't a chore like it was when I would cook for kosher caterers in New York City. We'd always use the replacement foods, the swaps. Like my favorite one to make fun of is mocha. Have you ever heard of mocha? No. It's the non-dairy dairy replacement that kosher caterers use instead of milk and cream. And it's basically vegetable oil with emulsifiers. It's vegetable oil, emulsifiers, and some artificial flavor to make it look and taste like dairy. Life without mocha is much better. So if you just look at the ingredients you can use, instead of thinking of healthy food as deprivation, and you just look at what you can use, there's so much there. There's there's a ton of great healthy ingredients. Go to the farmer's market. I'm going to do this for social media either this week or next week. I'm going to go and say, point out what foods you can eat if you're on my diet. And it's going to be 98% of what's there. It's going to be literally thousands of things that you can eat if you're on my diet because the foods that are good choices actually outnumber the bad choices. We just don't know that because we're being marketed to the same way cigarette smokers were marketed to in the 50s to the 80s when there were no laws about that. Before I forget, where can people find information on what you're doing? My website is a great place. My social media, rockwithespirito.com, pounddaydiet.com, and then all my social media. I'm posting every day either healthy recipes or articles that I believe are uh, will we'll send you put you in a good direction. And it's important not only because it's important for you as a listener and, and us as individuals to be healthy, but it affects our society. You know, the amount of money that we spend on lifestyle-related medicine and, and rehab and, and care is more than we can afford. You know, the, the healthcare debate is constant. Look at what happened in the last six months over healthcare. Right? Wars are being started over healthcare. And if we, you know, in the 60s, we spent six times as much money on food than we did healthcare. And now the inverse is true. We spent six times as much money on healthcare than we do food. If we made food a priority, we'd solve a lot of our problems. Big socioeconomic problems, you know, food shortages, even the price of oil would go down. I mean, there's so many things that we debate every day and we fight over that can be solved by each of us eating a healthier diet, living a healthier lifestyle, reducing our footprint in many ways, not just our carbon footprint. But, you know, all that unhealthy food that gets made in other countries requires fuel to be brought to this country for us to eat. If you ate what's local, you would reduce the consumption of fuel. So there's tentacles in just about every part of our society that are debated on a daily basis and could be affected in, in a very positive way other than your health, other than your personal health, if you, if you chose a healthier path. Are you doing any school food work? Yes, yeah. of course. I always have done school work and 
always been a volunteer. So Health Corps is a, is a big foundation that I'm, I'm involved with. Wellness in the schools, another one. We just started doing a bunch of work with them. Good. We're great. doing a pilot program with them in Novato, California. Oh, terrific. Terrific. The whole terrific. school district. The last thing I did with them was uh, Michelle Obama's Partnership for Healthy America in April in D.C. Yeah, we, we spoke there for wellness. They do a great job. So segueing into social impact sure. and giving back right yeah. there. I know you're a very generous and giving person. We talked about the specific moment in your life that got you into the nutrition and health space, but in terms of giving back, is there a specific moment or story that inspired her social impact? It's going to go right back to my mom. She was very civic-minded. She's always helped wherever help was needed. I'm not talking about just raising money for my childhood at elementary school. You know, we had bazaars and fundraisers and weekly bingo and I always went to bingo with my mom and helped count money in the back room and you know put rubber bands around stacks of cash. I, I, I'll never forget double checking the bingo cards to make sure that they were correct. There was like a bingo card auditor, this older guy who used to pretend to let me help him. Every once in a while, we'd find the candy stash and maybe take a bar or two. I'm not going to admit to anything here. I don't want to self-incriminate. But my mom was generous and charitable to her neighbors, to the elderly in our neighborhood. She would do crazy things. Things, things that you would consider insane today, like help someone feed and clean themselves at the end of their life for no other reason than she was generous and saw someone in need. I remember doing this a couple of times and I, I, I thought, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? You don't even know this person. And she said, she needs my help. She's old and she, there's no one helping her and someone should be helping her. Wow. She did it with a woman I actually worked for for a little while, Mrs. Adams, Henrietta Adams. She was 98 when she died in the 1970s. And I used to buy her, her groceries and she'd let me keep the change. That was my pay. She always got Trisket chicken crackers, M&Ms, milk, you know, stuff like that. So she was born in the 19th century. So she was 98 in the 70s, born in the 1870s, right? Or 1880s. And when she passed away, my mom took care of her for months, like a home health aide would today. Like the kind of care you'd get in a nursing home to give her dignity to just because she could and she needed it and that was good enough for her you know there was nothing else in it for her her daughter wasn't available mrs adams daughter we talked about a lot and she expected absolutely nothing in return and i think you can't help but take a lesson away from that as a as a 9 or 10 year old child right it's an extraordinary thing to see and anytime anyone asked and you know chefs are constantly asked to help with charity because we can help raise money fairly easily by donating a dinner or donating food or donating our services and we're happy to do it by the way and we love doing it it's part of i think what makes our business so special when i became a chef people would start asking and my inclination was always to say yes you know if there was a reason to say no it, it was a good reason it was because i was either not going to be there or i couldn't do it or i couldn't afford to or even if i couldn't afford to i still still did it but there was a real reason to say no. That's just, it's just part of the central value system of my, you know, my parents and my, my Italian upbringing. And I think it's true for a lot of people who come from Italy that time post-war. If you didn't help each other out, you're, you were going to suffer miserably post-war Italy in, in the South. So That's actually one of the main reasons why I started the podcast to focus on how chefs and people in the industry do give back. Mm -hmm. And there's people who give back through money, through mm -hmm. time, through these dinners, through they have a business partner who has this foundation mm -hmm. and they support it. Is there a specific causes or foundations that you work with? You yeah, can so share about? I, I tend to focus mostly on food security issues, uh, education on obesity, childhood obesity, lifestyle and health issues. And I work with foundations like Health Corps and, and Wellness in the Schools, 
Feeding America, Food Bank, very actively in both the money raise areas and sometimes, you know, day-to-day things like volunteering at a food bank for, you know, an especially important time. I also always have pro bono clients. Yeah, so people come to me and ask to get on my plan a lot. And because it's custom, it's I only have a certain amount of spaces. And some people really need to be on the plan because their life's in danger. And I know I can help them. And so I'll do that for about 30% of my clients at any given time. And that's one way I give it. But I think the most important way for chefs to give back is to share what they've learned with the public. We have the ability to do that, right? Going on Rachel Ray's show, for example, she'll give you the platform you need anytime you need it. And we've all got interesting things to talk about, no matter whether your your focus is health and wellness or food policy or w- whatever it is. Chefs tend to be in the mix, you know, in terms of policy or things that'll change the world for good. So sharing that information, sharing the access, that's, that's a really good way to make people aware of of things that they probably weren't aware of before and how to take action. The Food Policy Action Group is another great example. Yeah, Colicchio's. So Gray Coons, who we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. famous Swiss chef. Yeah. But born in... Born in Singapore. Yeah. Born and raised in Singapore. He described you 20, 30 years ago as concentrated, focused, and quiet. Wow. Never been accused of being quiet. Now, what three words would you use to describe yourself? Um... Terrified, uh, <laughs> aging, and and content. Content. Terrified for real? Yeah. These are interesting times, right? Lots of stuff going on that, that's terrifying. Terrified with yourself or the world? Both, right? I'm part of the world and the world's part of me, so... I've never felt as unstable as I feel now with stuff that's happening in, on, on the planet. It just feels like a very weird time. I know that we're reducing our resources at an alarming rate. We're warming up the ocean faster than ever before. We're melting glaciers faster than ever before. We're polluting the atmosphere faster than ever before. We're doing crazy things politically. It's a worrisome time. So I'm a little terrified. That's, That's the real, that's the truth. I think we're gonna be okay, but. So I would say, if you want a serious, more serious answer, content with my work, hopeful, and uh, curious. All right, closing here. What would you want people to say about the career of Rocco Desperado? Like a legacy type oh, question, wow. if you It's will. too early for legacy. <laughs> I'm, uh, according to my doctor, I've rever- I'm, I'm now 25 years old. I love when I hear people say they've enjoyed my food somewhere, whether it's at Union Pacific or in their home fridge because it was delivered to them last night. So I would love for someone to remember me as someone who made them something delicious once. I think that's more than enough to make me happy and more than enough to ask for. My goal when I decided to become a chef was to be able to make delicious things. So that's all I wanted to do. Awesome. Thanks, man. You're welcome. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Quote, the path that I'm on is the path that life took me on. It feels good. It's me. It's authentically me. Thanks again to Rocco Desperado. Find more on him and all of his business endeavors at RoccoDesperado.com. And please join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Rocco's going to be sharing a recipe from his upcoming cookbook, Rocco's Healthy and Delicious, due out October 17th. 
You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast, and we have our own Facebook page. Please like us there. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.